This is the Big K Morning Show. Welcome to the weekend. I'm Larry Richard. Marty Griffin will be back. Don't know exactly when, but he posted a great video we shared last hour. The audio from it with him and Christine. Christine reading what Marty had to say. But it does give a comprehensive update of where Marty stands and his medical issues and uh, in, in a true Marty Griffin fashion. And one of our friends, Selena Zito, great journalist, Northside born and bred, who uh, has been a journalist her whole career, a Washington examiner, and just last Sunday had a big story about Robert Casey Jr., United States Senator. Selena, good morning. Good morning. I would say good morning, sunshine, but when I looked out my window this morning, there really is fog. I can't even see my neighbor's house. I know. It's pretty foggy <laughs> out this morning. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I know you're very close to Marty, so I appreciate him keeping us updated. A lot of people have reached out and asked, and nice that they have, and nice that you can go to get Marty's Facebook page or X, and he'll give you an update. And Did you see the video with Christine? And done in only the way that Marty would do it, um, and 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 I I feel like that says that's enough of a teaser for people to go and watch it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about your profile of Senator Casey. This is another big year. His name is legendary. You know, it's a legacy name in this state, as you well know. Uh, but you know, there are those that say he doesn't say much. Kind of boring to interview. Uh, but you did a whole profile that includes a whole bunch of family members, too. Who is Robert Casey? Well, well, thank you. It was the second in a two-part series looking at McCormick and Casey and trying to take a look at them. This is arguably going to be the most expensive race in the country, probably the most important. It will probably decide who's the majority, uh, who has the majority come January um, of 2025. And so I try to look at each man from the perspective of the people that that sort of formed him um, as opposed to politics. And and with Casey, uh, there is this very tight knit group of friends that he grew up with on um, on North Washington Avenue in Scranton that sort of are the people that, that formed who he is. Uh, and that along with his family, he's one of eight. Um, what was interesting in interviewing people that are friends with him is that on uh, there must have been something about that street because on North Washington Avenue, um, each family had like five kids, nine kids, 11 kids, eight kids. Um, so, so a lot of these, um, a lot of these kids actually had to take care of each other, uh, because of course their parents weren't driving vans to go pick them up from basketball practice. I mean, Casey tells the story that he hitchhiked home every day from school. That's how he got home from Scranton prep. Something we would never think about doing today. No. Nor would we, you know, ever think about telling our kids, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead. You can do that. I know I hitchhiked but, to get to Ponderosa Steakhouse in McKnight Road just to, to go to work. But I was embarrassed because I had that polyester Western outfit on. Oh, that's right. Anyway, but uh, we're with Selena Zito. Yeah, he hitchhiked from school and basketball practice. Uh but in your interview, he does seem, you know, people have said oh, he's boring, <laughs> but is he effective? That's the more important thing. 
Well, you know, I mean, he's been reelected three times. Right. You know, there there is, and he was elected twice for statewide office, and and so you know, he has been in our lives since 1996. Those of us who live in Pennsylvania. And the only election he ever lost was in 2002. Ed Rendell. Yeah, between him and Rendell. And I don't know if you remember that, but that was a pretty nasty primary race. Uh, and But even his friends and family admit, you know, that quiet guy, that's that's actually who he is. Uh, and, and so, you know, with Casey, I would say this race between him and McCormick will likely be his most challenging race. Most of the races he has, with the exception of Ed Rendell, have been pretty easy. Most of the Republicans he's faced. I mean, I think he beat Rick Santorum in 2006 by 19 percentage points. Um, and, and part of it has to do with him, and part of it has to do with his father's legacy. Now we're a generation away from his father's uh, passing, and, and, you know, this is definitely a year where incumbents are in trouble. So I think it's going to be a competitive and fascinating race between him and McCormick. But McCormick is different than all of his other competitors. He's more middle of the road. He is well-financed. He's a likable guy. He's not a hair-on-fire Republican. And so I think that it's going to be a a, a, a really good race, I think, on policy for Pennsylvania voters in this state this year. Especially, as you pointed out, the importance of that Senate seat when it comes yeah. to tipping the power in Washington. Read all about it, Selena Zito. Uh, that story in the Post-Gazette. Selena is a national political reporter, Washington Examiner, New York Post columnist, co-author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. You also uh, did some pieces on small business. If you can stick around, I want I want people to hear this because small business is the backbone of this city and this country, right? Absolutely. Don't think we realize how much small businesses are impact everything we do every day from the things that we buy to the people they employ. Some insights with Selena Zito next on the Big K Morning Show. We continue our conversation with journalist Selena Zito, Northside native. I'm looking at all the publications you're contributing to. Now add the Wall Street Journal. You may be the busiest woman in journalism. Well, you know, my my my, my profession is, is struggling a little bit, so it, it it's important to 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 find places to tell good stories as often as I can. A good journalist is a good storyteller. It's the who, what, where, when, and why. You try to do that as non-biased as humanly possible. That's a big challenge. Anytime you mention the word politics or any person associated with it, so. Let's flip to the other things you do and the stories you tell. You also, I love the fact that you travel around and you do, you find these stories in little towns, but your stuff on small businesses and their importance, I found really interesting and fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I always feel very blessed to be able to also tell stories about our culture. I don't fly. I, even don't, I don't even take the turnpike or the interstate. I only take back roads. 
uh, gives me the ability to understand what is happening on the most granular level uh, in our country. You don't see that flying over something or flying past it on the turnpike. Uh, small businesses is one of those things. Um, most people, I think, do not, unless they run a small business, do not realize that the majority of Americans work for a small business in this country. They truly are the backbone of our country. And they are one of the few entities in American society, American culture, that people fully still have trust in. There's this, uh, this, this, this measurement that's taken every year. It's the Edelman Trust Barometer. And it measures the trust people have in things like media, uh, government, of uh, the military and all of those used to have very high marks up in the 70 and 80 percentage uh, points today they're, they're in the low teens people just don't have trust in them uh, but small business is has held its own it is the thing it is the last vestige in american um, culture that people truly have trust in them and so i looked at small businesses in and around Westmoreland County uh, that, that, that could tell the story as to why. And, and it's really quite, it's a, uh, there's a small diner in Export, Pennsylvania called Wade's uh, Breakfast Grill. Uh, there was Labriolas, and there's a couple of them throughout the, uh, the, the area. And there's also a beauty salon um, in Westmoreland County. And I just talked to them about why people prefer going to their places, not chains, not big corporations, and what they do to ensure that that customer has earned, has, has leaves feeling as though they were treated the best they possibly could be treated. I know that when we were doing our Friday diner visits there for a stretch, that every one of those hardworking men and women we met uh, really – the people that were there felt it was way more than just business. They felt like they were part of a family. Yes, that is absolutely true. I took my little three-year-old granddaughter to Wade's um, breakfast grill a, a couple weeks ago. She sat up on the stool at the, at the chrome counter, right? First time she got to do that. And within five minutes, the woman sitting next to her shared a sliver of her pumpkin pie because she wanted to know what that was. The guy down the, uh, the other end of the counter had bought her a homemade donut, which Wade's is famous for, for custom making. And the other guy was telling her about his job as a train engineer. And, and there was just such a sense of community and, and, all, and, and caring for each other and conversations between strangers or just going back and forth. And it, and it just sort of exemplified exactly what I'm talking about. The other thing about small businesses, and this is why they are now eclipsing large corporations in terms of trust, the small businesses don't get in the mud with politics. They don't, you know, put signs in their in their windows or preach from their from behind the counter. And that's the kind of thing that is turning people off against larger corporations. We saw that this past year with um, with Budweiser and the impact that it had um, among people. And so I think that's another reason why small businesses, they're just doing their job. 
They're just doing what they do, and they want you to leave happy. And the nice thing is for people, you know, when we're distracted so much by social media is still a place where you can feel safe and talk with people and just be yourself in many cases in those environments. Selena Zito, thank you. Thank you so much. Let's see. See if I got this right. So Post-Gazette, Washington Examiner, New York Post, and now the Wall Street Journal. Anything else you want to add? Uh, No. You're good. (laughs) No, not yet. All right. Appreciate you. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Have a great weekend. This is my dad, Pietro Ferraro. Like many Italian immigrants, he brought family traditions, such as winemaking, to the United States from the Calabria region of Italy. That's not all he brought with him. In 1966, Pietro embarked on a mission to do something unique and previously unheard of, something he would share with Italian immigrants in the U.S. Like millions before them, when my father, mother, and older brother left Italy, they left behind loved ones, friends, and acquaintances. But Pietro had an idea. He would reunite dozens of Italians with their relatives already living in the States, not in person, but in a way that none had ever experienced before. Francesco, signor cugino Costino, e ricevuto la terra voce. Signora moglie Costino. This is the story of one man's simple but selfless act. Pete had a great idea what he did. An undertaking to help bridge a vast divide, filling a void by delivering personal messages of love, happiness, and sometimes sorrow. And how more than 50 years later, his gift continues to touch the lives of Italian-Americans. And this emanates from right here in Sharpsburg. It's called Il Messengero. Yeah, I stumbled upon this watching it one day, and I was fascinated because I knew a lot of the people in it. Right. But I did, and especially Mr. Ferrero, who, again, I grew up a half block from this guy, and I never knew he had this undertaking. So in 1966, he was going to immigrate here. And before that, for a couple years, he, he knew he was going to come from Italy to Pittsburgh. He cobbled up, like, reel-to-reel audio tape, okay? Right. And went around to everybody in his town in Italy. And they were they immigrated, a lot of them immigrated from the same town to the same town here. Right. And said, tape this message, because phone calls were very expensive and very sporadic. Long-form messages for, and he would sit there for an hour and talk to people. So then he shipped them and brought them to all these tapes, this box, and would deliver them and sit down with people once he got here and play them for them. And there was no internet. Again, people, a lot of people didn't have long-distance phone calls or they took too long or were too expensive. And there were 106 different voices that he did this for, and it reunited people. And then his son, who you heard right there, digitized these and had the recordings you know, brought up to speed. And so then every once in a while, he would go from Pittsburgh then, retape it in a long-form recording and take it back over. And this, again, before the internet or before long phone calls, like in the late 60s, and take it over. They found all these recordings. That's amazing. So Colin Dunlap is from Sharpsburg. I know a lot of great Sharpsburg people. They are mostly Italian-American. And mostly like Tony surname Ferraro. Ferraro. Yeah. Yeah, and I sent this to <laughs> Tony. He said, that's my good gene. You know, small world. I think you got to tell the story, though, about the guy on the corner where they went and they played some for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was a guy, and he was at the fire hall. I watched, and I can't, 
the reason I sent you this yesterday was I can't believe enough more people haven't seen this in Pittsburgh. It's crazy because I figured like you are a connoisseur for all of this. I and love I, documentary I, yeah, stories. Right. And I'm like, Larry has seen this, right? And you you hadn't no, seen it. I and I can't watch believe it. I hadn't seen it until just like two weeks ago. So they play this for this guy at the fire hall. And I didn't know him, which was interesting because I think I know everybody in that town. But anyway, they play it for him and he kind of starts crying. He's like, and he goes, That's my grandma. Because they had just found all the recordings, you know? I hadn't heard her voice since I was nine years old. Wow. And he was like 60, 65. And they dug up and piecemealed all together who these voices were. And he said, yeah, but I, I remember her. I was, I was nine the last time I heard her voice. So many people from wherever you came from could relate to what that must have been like. And what we forget a couple of generations later is what they gave up to come here. It, correct. And you would get, and they said, and it was interesting, I didn't realize this. Mail moved really fast back then. Like you'd write a letter and you'd get a letter like in a week. You know, it, for some reason, mail moved really fast. But that was the main line of communication was handwritten letters. There weren't a lot of phone calls in the mid-60s and late-60s overseas. But you could keep it. But to hear someone's voice was, you know, much different. Right. And Mr. Ferrero, Pietro, Pietro Ferrero did that. And I just knew him as a guy. Like, again, from my front porch, he lived Caddy Corner. They lived on... Uh, 16th Street. No, 15th Street. No, 17th Street. 17th Street. 16th Street. was. I could see his front porch from my front porch because th- my street ran perpendicular to theirs. I lived on Mary's Avenue, and they lived on 17th Street. And I'd see him. He's a little guy, nice guy, spoke broken English, c- couldn't have been a happier man. Um, But I never knew he did this. And it's remarkable. It's totally – and it's visionary. Like, it, it's revolutionary what he did. He was so ahead of his time. But and look, like we're not making any money off this documentary. We're not part of the production um, or anything. But I saw it, and I'm like, we owe it to you. Owe it to yourself as like a, a civic sense of history to watch it. I, I couldn't get enough. So you could search it up. Yeah, I think it's a QED production. Really great stuff and uh, really relatable again to a lot of people, especially that wave that came to Pittsburgh to find jobs in the mills and the mines that came from poorer countries that they couldn't get work. They said a lot of the people who came and lived there worked for H.J. Hines in the farms and that would makes farm sense. the stuff that would H.J. Hines would would eventually bottle and make as their products. Good stuff, Colin Dunlap. Yep. What are you working on today, by the way? Uh, I You know, I don't know. I'm figuring it all out right now. It's a slow news day. It is. Let's but be I'll, honest. I'll have some stuff. I know. You always do. Colin's take Coming up 10 to 2. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Or Arrivederci. So AT&T says it wasn't the result of a cyber attack that there was issues. Uh, that said, this week, the White House is putting out more, I guess, uh, they're trying to figure out, like everybody else, how to protect themselves, all of us, from cyber attacks. We're going to check in with an expert, Ron Layton, who is Served four presidents as a Secret Service agent and a cyber security experts. But when you were going through it yesterday, you're thinking, uh-oh, is this going to be something that happens often? But apparently uh, the good news is no. In the meantime, our producer is Samantha McGill. Samantha, you familiar with Dubois? 
With Dubois. Would, yeah, Dubois, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, that's near, it's a little bit close to Indiana, Pennsylvania. Yeah, right up along Interstate 80, yeah. not far from Clarion to the west. And then if you go east, everybody that travels 80 knows. By the way, they have the cheapest gas in the region where they did right there at the truck stop. But they are making international news, and you'll never guess why. A rare 14-carat gold Lego piece was just sold in an auction for five figures. And it was found by some workers at a Goodwill warehouse in Dubois. WTAJ's Tristan Kleinfelder. When the rare Lego was found, no one really knew what it was. The item was posted on shopgoodwill.com for just $14.95. Little did they know what someone would pay for it. The final bid was $18,101. The second highest bid was $18,100. The price is leaving workers with a lifelong story. I mean, we've been talking about it all week. I really haven't even had a chance to think about it, but it's pretty amazing. It just shows you can never find, you never know what you're going to find on shopgoodwill.com. How about that? So the Lego is believed to be one of only 30 that exist. In 2001, some were gifted to Lego employees while the rest were awarded through a contest. So that's why they're so rare. Which is the genesis, Sam, for people, I'm not saying full-blown hoarders, but people who are reluctant to give up stuff. You know people like that? Oh, yeah. Like if you saw my home studio slash office it's sad are you saying you're one of these people well yeah it's stories like that where you go well maybe while other people just say no it's garbage or what else did they say give it to goodwill right and then you hear a story where an 18 karat gold lego is found in a goodwill bag i feel like if i had an 18 karat gold lego though like i wouldn't miss that well, maybe they didn't really, obviously they didn't know yeah. that it was real gold. Yeah. They probably just thought it was painted that way. But, uh, so, it's hard to give up, <laughs> it's hard to give up stuff. Let me just say that. It's an issue. I feel anxiety when I have to throw stuff out. Not regular garbage, but I mean stuff that you've had for a while. And sure enough. Sometimes when I've done that, there's one thing I knew I had, which in your mind, you know where it is, you know what it is, and what it's for, and finally the opportunity comes up, and you don't got it anymore. Sad, Sam. Sad.